we've been in a series, we've basically titled it The Image of God, and what we've been looking at are a series of topics under this larger theme or topic of the image of God, which is uh, race, gender, sexuality, life. As with most things that we give to Jesus, uh, he multiplies them. So what started out originally as only a four-week series has multiplied in God's hands to become eight series or eight topics, eight teachings in this. So it was way longer than what I originally had expected for this thing to be. But that was in part because you guys had a lot of really good questions, uh, which raised some sort of nuances that I think needed to be made uh, throughout the duration of this whole series. And, but today is officially the last day of this. Um, and so what I want to do is I want to really be clear before I jump in uh, about what we're going to basically look at here today. Today is uh, the subject of the image of God, and the topic underneath that is life slash immigration. So we're going to be looking at specifically a subject of immigration and or refugee situation, or if you want to even think of it in another context, legal immigration may be even part of that as well, how you would maybe understand or think about this. Now, I realize this is a big topic in today's culture and society, um, that there are a lot of concerns, a lot of political issues and topics that are oftentimes covered on this. And this is uh, one of those topics that oftentimes creates and generates a lot of heat, maybe not a lot of light, but definitely a lot of heat, and oftentimes a lot of problems around this issue. But what we've been saying with every one of these issues, every one of them are actually rooted in Scripture. God has something to say. So as followers of Jesus... I think it's really important for us to really just open scripture and say, God, what do you have to say about the subject of immigration? What's on your heart? What's in your mind on this topic? And how can an understanding of scripture actually inform how we think about this subject matter within the culture at large and help us think about these things when we're hearing uh, right-wing conservative agenda and perspectives, say from Fox, all the way over to left-wing agenda and topics and ideas, as far as like Huffington Post and or Mother Jones and whatnot, how do we find some form of balance to look at these things somewhere in between? How does scripture, how does God have to say about these things? And how can we allow that to shape our understanding of that? That's, that's the main thing. So I want to be really clear about what I want to look at here this morning. So uh, first of all, uh, my, my attempt, my aim is really to put forth a biblical narrative and or an argument for how followers of Jesus are to respond really to the vulnerable. That's it. How are followers of Jesus, um, this, again, let, me, let me nuance this just a little bit further as well. What I'm not going to be doing today is my aim is not to offer opinions on immigration reform and or illegal immigration. That's not my objective. Um, I, I, I do recognize that there's a valid place for government and governmental policies to be in place, to be in play, to somehow provide protection and so on and so forth. But my main objective today is to really try to present a and uh, bring some sort of clarity, I think, if, if, it's any, if it's lacking in any way. What does God have to say about how his people are to think about the vulnerable? One final thing I would say in regards to kind of nuancing this is my message today is not for uh, the government. My, my, my audience today are followers of Jesus. So if you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus, you're a skeptic, you're an agnostic, you're an atheist, whatever... Glad you're here. Welcome. There's a lot of you that oftentimes drop in. You're part of it, so glad that you're here. My main primary audience today are people who claim and swear allegiance to Jesus, who say, Jesus is my king. I follow him, and I allow him to inform and transform my life to reflect him in this world. That's my primary audience. The reason why I say that is because the idea of trying to moralize a uh, culture at large 
is, is never been the commission of God. God did not send people in the world to say, go out and make policies that are moral. God's aim to his church was to say, go out and preach the gospel. Proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. So that's what our aim is, and to reflect God in this world. So uh, when I think Christians try to force non-believers, people that reject God, people that are not necessarily interested in the government of King Jesus over their life, and try to force them into some form of a morality, um, then what ends up happening is you have a society that for the most part externally might look sort of Christian, but internally is fighting and resistant and not actually amiable towards God. Now, that being said, are, are, is a nation better off, is a secular nation better off following certain rules of God? Yes. For example, thou shalt not kill. That's a great law that we have adopted into generation or our culture at large that we would say we're much better off as a nation, nation adopting that type of idea. But in, in general, the idea that my audience today is really focused upon followers of Jesus and how we should think about this subject of treating those who are vulnerable. Secondly, um, one of the questions that have been asked to me several times is, will I be doing a teaching on the subject within the context of life on unborn life and or abortion? And uh, the answer to that is, is yes, but not now. Not now. Um, and for a couple of reasons. One is because this series has already taken up longer than I had anticipated originally. Um, secondly, we are kind of, we have two weeks to go before Easter. And I really uh, value this time of year to really reflect upon uh, the purpose of the cross, to think about Jesus' uh, life, his death, his suffering, his resurrection, his ascension. I think there's some really important topics that are actually very, very central to our understanding of who God is that I don't want to miss this window of time. So uh, today's going to be the last message on this. At some point, I will address the subject of the unborn and abortion and so on, but not right now. Um, and then beginning next week, we'll begin to tune our minds to think about uh, the season which we're in to think about the, uh, the, the death, the suffering of Christ, the death of Christ. Uh, Easter Sunday will be obviously the resurrection of Jesus. And then the Sunday after that, we'll take a look at um, the ascension of what it means uh, for Jesus to be king and so on. So, um, and that being said, the final thing I want to do is, is I want to pray and then we'll jump in. Sound good? So God, we uh, come to you and we thank you for allowing us to be able to be here. God, we even thank you for allowing us to be able to be in this time. 2017, on the Central Coast, in California. God, even though there's all sorts of chaos and confusion and angst and frustration within our culture on a variety of topics, uh, especially the subject that we're going to be looking at here today, God, we thank you that you allowed us to live in this nation, in this city, in this time equipped with the gospel. So God, help us to see ourselves as missionaries in a society that has, in many ways, um, walked in darkness, as we have walked in darkness. And yet, God, you've, you've shown us kindness and shown us love. And God, help us to know how to navigate ourselves well within that culture so that we could show kindness and love to others. So help us, we pray, as we... Uh, Open our hearts and our minds to this subject today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, back in uh, 2010, uh, if you're familiar with Patheos, it's uh, kind of a Christian spiritual type website. It's not necessarily Christian, but it's uh, a lot of spiritual writings and authors and whatnot on there. Not necessarily uh, all Christian, but this was an article that was uh, kind of put together in 2010. 
uh, for a Patheos article, there was a series of questions that were asked to several Christian leaders throughout America, and uh, the Christian leaders that were uh, contributors to this, they were um, uh, university professors, theologians, some of them were pastors, some of them were missionaries, a big, large variety of uh, probably a dozen, if not more. Um, and basically, the subject was immigration and illegal immigration are matters of grave ethical concern. And these are the questions that were asked to them. Uh, does the Bible give principles or insights that should guide Christian thinking on the issue of immigration? Uh, another one was, uh, is there a Christian position on illegal immigration? Another one is, uh, would it be unchristian to expel illegal immigrants who have built their lives in the United States? So these were some questions. And actually, the article that kind of followed, again, this is back in 2010. I actually posted this article uh, on my Facebook page last night. So if you're interested in this, you can go check it out. And again, just to me, I, I found it really fascinating, interesting, just to read a variety of opinions and ideas coming from a Christian angle, Christian perspective, all follows, or at least proclaimed followers of Jesus uh, with different angles on this. Some of them were theologians, Christians, that were actually uh, at, at one point from uh, another country living in, in America. So they were at one point, they were refugees that came into America. So they have unique angles and of, of understanding this um, rather than, say, a, a white uh, male who uh, has spent his entire life in some form of privilege. Um, but the point that I would make is uh, it's important to read and understand different angles and perspectives on this. So if you're interested in that, check it out. But here's a couple, um, one, one statement that kind of had arisen out of this article that I found kind of interesting. I want to start with this, and we'll get into some passages we'll read in just a moment here. Next slide says this. There's a guy by the name of M. Daniel Carroll. He's actually, uh, I think, a New Testament pro uh, professor out of Wheaton College. He says this as he contributed to this article. He says, all too often, Christian responses in the U.S. to immigration are not different in any substantial way than the responses of those who do not profess faith. Now, that, that line alone is actually kind of fascinating to me because, again, this is a guy, this is obviously his opinion, as he's sort of uh, uh, taking a look at the landscape, and he's trying to make some sort of comparisons and contrasts. And what I found kind of fascinating to that is that's interesting because uh, Christians and the way that we view things should be different, should radically be different to some degree, or at least to some degree, different than the culture at large. Now, some things, obviously, there's, there's a greater relief or greater idea of contrast. So, for example, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, the subject of uh, sex ethic. Um, every human being has a sex ethic, all right? You are not here minus a sex ethic. Everyone has a sex ethic. Now... Society at large has an ethic on sex. Christians also have an ethic on sex. Some Christians don't know that they have an ethic of sex because they haven't spent the time investing it. So in other words, they've just adopted a worldly ethic of sex, even though they might be followers of Jesus, and there's a little bit of confusion and, and going on there. But the point of the matter is, Christianity at large has an ethic on sex. It's radically different than the ethic of sex within the world. And the same thing this guy is basically identifying that he says, it's fascinating to me that the idea of U.S., uh, the, the, the opinions, the responses from Christians, in a lot of ways don't vary too much differently in a substantial way from those who do not profess faith. So that's, that's a fascinating observation. He goes on. He says, discussions tend to be limited to protecting national borders and the American way of life. There are complaints about the supposed economic costs brought on by added pressures to schools, hospitals, and law enforcement. These are legitimate issues. He goes on. Uh, next slide. He says, what might, be, what might a more fully biblically informed response to the immigration challenge look like? Where would it begin? The starting place of a discussion determines in large measure its tone and content. 
if we begin with Genesis 1, which is where we've actually uh, rooted every uh, topic that we've looked at so far in, he said, if we begin with Genesis 1, all humans are created in the image of God with infinite worth and great potential. The debate will be quite different. I think that word is not added. Um, It will focus on persons with needs and gifts that can contribute to the common good instead of taking a default negative defensive posture against any newcomers within our midst. Similarly, there's another guy by the name of Russell Moore, who uh, is uh, kind of a a well-known author and writer in today's world. He is actually the president of Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission for the Southern Baptist Commission, or SBC, and he wrote by saying this. He says, I'm amazed when I hear evangelical Christians speak of undocumented immigrants in this country with disdain as, quote-unquote, those people who are draining our health care and welfare resources. It's horrifying to hear those identified with the gospel speak whatever their position. This is much more than a political issue abstracted from our salvation. Jesus tells us that our response to the most vulnerable among us is a response to Jesus himself. And he's referencing Matthew chapter 25, verse 40. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with that, I highly recommend writing it down, reading that at another time. It says this, God will judge those who exploit workers and mistreat the poor. No matter how invisible they seem to us, now God hears. That's a fantastic line. God hears, no matter how vulnerable they are. I mean, that's, that's, that very line right there is what gives all of us hope, that God hears. None of us are anonymous to God. Like, imbibe that. I don't, I don't care who you are, no matter what type of circumstances you're going through, like, breathe that in. Let that truth uh, radically change your life to understand you're not alone. You're not anonymous. You're not just a nameless face uh, on a planet, you know, in the middle of nothingness. You have a God that knows you. You're not alone. God sees you. And this is great hope. So now I want to move on to basically look at what I, what I would see as sort of a question beneath a question. So there is this question beneath the question of who is the immigrant and or the refugee and or how do we treat them? which is really a bigger, broader question, which is, who's my neighbor? And I think this is the real question that I really want to think about for us to consider, because this is it. Like, who's my neighbor? And what this is actually rooted in is in a story or a parable that Jesus himself gives. And I want to spend kind of the rest of our time unpacking, looking at, and listening to the words of Jesus, and sort of thinking about the words that Jesus has to say. Again, this is a message to followers of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, uh, the first and most important item for you to think about if you're not a follower of Jesus is not your sexual ethic. It's not how you view immigrants. It's Jesus. Like my most important thing that I would love for you to take away from this is to see the compelling beauty of Jesus. Not try to figure out how to live sexually moral or not try to figure out the uh, immigrant debate, but to understand and see and absorb and think about the beauty of, of Christ. All those other things will be worked out as we find ourselves living in submission and love to King Jesus. So with that being said, let's listen to the words of Christ as we kind of begin to move into uh, a parable out of the book of Luke chapter 10. So if you want, you can turn there. If not, it'll be up on the screen. Just listen to it. I'll read it, make a few comments, and we'll wrap this up. And we'll try to spend some time uh, answering some questions. So as uh, we've been over the past few weeks, we have the slido.com. You can ask some questions and or upvote them. Uh, 8126 is the code. Uh, You guys know the drill. So Luke chapter 10, verse 25, starts off and says this. A lawyer uh, stood up to Jesus, uh, put to Jesus, hold on, let me start all over again. I don't know what I'm doing. A lawyer stood up 
to put Jesus to the test. So first of all, a lawyer, what is a lawyer? So a lawyer will think like law and order, don't think that. Think, and, you know, nice press, Armani suit, that's not what he's talking about. A lawyer back in Jesus' day would have been someone that was a law expert. This would have been probably either a Pharisee or a scribe or somebody that was a part of the religious elite system. This would have been someone that would have been, you know, had like, you know, doctor of theology or, you know, multiple letters before his name and spent most of his time in preparatory ministry and studying scriptures would have been someone that would have been very familiar with what was uh, called or known as the Torah. So he would have studied it, perhaps even memorized it. He was an expert on the Torah, expert on the law. That's where you get the name lawyer from. So this guy who's an expert on ancient uh, Jewish uh, tradition and history and custom, he comes to Jesus not trying to have a meaningful dialogue, like, Jesus, good master, tell me how to improve my understanding of scripture. He's actually got an agenda. So we're actually told his agenda is to test Jesus, in other words, to kind of trap him. So again, he goes on to say, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, you're going to find verse 26 that Jesus then answers him. He says, what is written in the law? Now, this might come across a little bit like, why would you answer or ask a question to a question? And now this is very Jewish. This is very Hebraic. The way Jews oftentimes uh, would dialogue with each other and try to find answers is it was this process, kind of like, you know, jousting, dancing back and forth, like you would ask a question, and then the good rabbi then would, would address the question with asking another question, which this is exactly what Jesus does, very traditional in terms of Hebraic uh, origin. So Jesus asked him a question. So what is written in the law? You're an expert. You study this stuff, spent your entire life focusing on this stuff. What does it say? Tell me. And then he goes on, and he says, uh, how do you read it? And then he answered, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And then he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So just pause real quick and think about this. So the religious scribe, he basically was familiar with what was, was known as the Old Testament law, the Shema, where God basically tells the people of Israel, says, listen up, people of Israel, I'm about to unpack and load some truth to you. And God says to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. And so the, the, the lawyer, the uh, expert, uh, communicates this to Jesus. And Jesus says, you've answered well. This is good. But then what you're going to find is Jesus then goes on into this parable, this story, to kind of give some backstory, some more context. And then he ends his whole story with another question. So everything that Jesus is about to say is actually set up for the final question. So again, in typical rabbinic fashion, the way that Jesus teaches is not by giving information, but by asking a question in the context of information. Does that make sense? So this is how Jesus does this. It might be a little bit foreign to the way that we do it, because the way that we get information is we ask a question, and then the teacher unpacks all sorts of information to us or sends us to a website, and we're supposed to read it all ourselves. But the way that Jesus would do this is really significant. Then uh, it says, but he, the religious leader, desiring to justify himself, uh, he said to Jesus, then who's my neighbor? It's a valid question. Again, question with question. Well, who is my neighbor? If I'm supposed to love God, love my neighbor, who, who really specifically is my neighbor? Now, a uh, little bit more context I think is needed here. Uh, Jesus lived in first century, and uh, the way first century Palestine was sort of designed or set up was it was basically a community of Jewish people under foreign occupation. So for us, living in America, that's, that's, that's abstract and it's foreign. Like, we don't, we don't quite get that. We don't quite understand that. Now, if you were to go to, say, uh, a, a land, say, like in, in Palestine, uh, where 
uh, they feel like they're under Jewish occupation or whatever. You go into other parts of the world uh, and you were to dialogue with people that are kind of uh, feeling as if they're being oppressed. Um, best way I can liken it to would be like if, if um, Canada invaded, and I've said this before, if Canada invaded and we are under Canadian occupation, you've got a bunch of guys with rifles in their hands or slingshots or whatever it is they carry, and, uh, uh, and, and, and they're, they're occupying our land, so we have no freedoms. All the freedoms that we would call the American dream are now stripped away from us, and we're under uh, Canadian occupation. And so there's a lot of disdain, a lot of anger, a lot of frustration. You, you obviously know your enemy. Your enemies are Romans, and your enemies also become nuanced by saying, I hate anybody who aligns with Romans. So within Jewish custom, you had people that were wanting to make a living. Um, you know, they wanted to survive, and they wanted to make some money. And so oftentimes what they would do is they would align with uh, Roman sensibilities, and they would become tax, you know, taxmen. They, you know, everybody hates tax people, but um, they especially hated them back in that day because they were not only just simply collecting money, but they were also selling out their own flesh and blood. So you had people like Matthew, the tax collector, actually wrote, you know, the first book in the New Testament, Matthew. Um, and you would have these people. So there was all this dialogue. Like, there's a lot of animosity, a lot of anger, a lot of hatred. So there's definitely this question, who is my neighbor? Show me who my neighbor is, and I'll love him. Like, who's the nice guy who lives next door to me? See, we tend to think of neighbor as the person who lives at the very next address right next to you. Obviously, Jesus has a different way of understanding this, and it's important for us to understand what Jesus has to say when he thinks about neighbor. Then Jesus replied to him, and here's, he goes into a story, in a narrative. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him uh, and beat him, and he departed, leaving him half dead. And we don't know anything about the man. There's, it's obviously, the details of who the man is are obsolete to the story. But what we're told, obviously, as he's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, this is, uh, if you're familiar with the first century, um, this was actually a really sketchy part of town, uh, area, part of the county. Um, from that area, it was, it was a known haven for all sorts of robbers and people that would just go out there and they would do dubious things. And you would, it'd be kind of like walking uh, down a dark alley in Compton at 2 in the morning. All right, and you, you, don't, you don't know what types of vices are around the corner. You're a little bit sketched out. Um, that's kind of the backstory of this. So this guy's walking from Jerusalem into the region of Jericho, and he's hijacked. All right, he's overtaken. He's stripped naked. All of his money is taken away from him. He's beaten up, and he's uh, left for half dead. Now we're told in verse 31, now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, passed by on the other side. So what we're told is that this priest, whoever the priest is, um, he just walks by. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't show any compassion, doesn't help, doesn't stop to ask, are you okay, doesn't check in, just keeps walking for whatever reason. Now, um, again, there's a, there's a lot of backstory that can be understand, understood about this, but without question, what Jesus is basically doing is this is a, 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 a jab, without being so subtle, against the actual religious elitism of his day. So Jesus didn't have a problem actually poking a finger in the eye of the religious system. So really what he's basically doing is saying, look, the priests, and the priests in that day were highly respected. They were cared for. They were, they, were, they were honored people within that culture and society. But they weren't always living in congruent lifestyle with the nature and the character of God. And so this priest in Jesus' story becomes not a hero, right, uh, but actually is a person that is the opposite of a hero. He's kind of part of the problem. So he says in verse 31, now by chance, the priest was going down the road, and he saw him, and he passed by. And in verse 32, he says, so likewise, also a, a Levite. Now, a Levite would have been sort of the tribe. 
of which the priests would come out of. So the bigger, broader tribe, Levites, uh, uh, the tribe of Levi was a part of the, uh, the larger community of the people of, of Israel. So there are 12 tribes. Levi was the specific tribe that had overseen all the religious duties and institutions. And the idea is that these guys should have been the ones that brought forth justice and righteousness, compassion, kindness. But for whatever reason, there's this massive omission of anything relating to compassion. So the very ones that are supposed to be you know, bringing forth compassion and kindness are not. And this is part of the rub within the story. And then Jesus, he says, so a Levite, when he came down to the place and he saw me, passed by on the other side, just like the other guy. Verse 31, 33, he says, but a Samaritan. Now, if you've got to pause right here, because immediately when you hear the name Samaritan, if you're Jewish, living in the first century, this would be a rub to you. If you're a good Jew and you're trying to obey uh, the Torah and live according to the ways of God, um, anything related to Samaritans would have been deeply offensive. Here's a couple of reasons why. Samaritans were oftentimes viewed as half-breeds. I mean, literally, they were not seen as legitimate, true, full-blood, full-blood, full-blooded Jews. Um, they literally had sort of a half-breed. They were half-Jewish uh, and half-Assyrian. So they were kind of viewed as half-breeds. Secondly, they kind of created a weird composite religion a religion that involved some practices of Judaism, but also involved some pagan uh, folklore as well. So pagan uh, traditions interwoven with Judaism. So for the most part, they were viewed not only as half-breeds, but also as heretics. So half-breeds and heretics basically kind of fit the bill of anyone who's a Samaritan. So immediately, if you're listening to this story and you hear the word Samaritan brought into the story, you're kind of like, what? What are you going to say about the Samaritan? Well, shockingly, here's what Jesus says about the Samaritan. He says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, this would immediately send kind of a shockwave to the hearers. Now, in today's context, in today's culture, if you were Jesus and telling the story to a bunch of Americans, um, you would, and you're trying to share a moral, the moral being compassion and kindness, uh, in the American context, you would say an American war hero was walking down the street, and he walked past the guy that was wounded. Or a politician who is on the payroll walked by, he did nothing. But then, finally, the third guy that came walking by was an ISIS militant. And he saw this guy, and he stooped down, and he showed compassion. Imagine the story in that context. Like, if you were telling that story today, that would be, like, almost offensive. You'd hear that and be like, are you kidding me? That's offensive. That's frustrating to hear you say something to take a guy who's a Samaritan, a half-breed, a heretic, and raise him to a level of a hero? Not good. But here's as he goes on to say. And he went to him, and he bound, him up, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He sat him uh, on his own, he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Verse 36 is, which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? So this is the question. This is the final question. This is the question where Jesus was building up the entire climactic story to this final point. Which one was truly the neighbor to this guy that had been broken and vulnerable and destitute? And the guy answers, he says, he can't, it's funny, because he can't even say, he can't even bring himself to admit what's well, the Samaritan. He doesn't even say the name. He just says, well, it's the guy that showed compassion, right? And then Jesus says, go 
and do likewise. So the moral of the story is our neighbor, obviously, are going to be people that are vulnerable. And in this context, the question that I want to kind of lead into is who is my neighbor? In the context today, we see it's the immigrant, the refugee, the forgotten. Uh, we could have gone any direction. We could have talked about the unborn, the unborn who might be aborted, or we can talk about uh, any number of uh, agencies or ideas or people that might fit in this context. But because we, uh, you guys have asked a lot of questions about the immigrant and refugee, and this is a big issue within our culture today because the Bible has a lot to say about this, I really just want to focus on this particular thing. Now, the second thing I want to really understand and look at is how I've written up here, which is what response does God actually commend? What is the right response? Well, obviously, the first response of ignoring or uh, rejecting or walking away or uh, carefully you know, uh, editing or creating a new pathway around or avoidance, none of these are commendable uh, by God. God doesn't look at them and commend them. He actually he has a critique against these things. But the action that God commends are twofold. One is compassion, and the second one is mercy. And both of these words actually play into the story. Uh, the word compassion is actually used, and it's this great Hebrew or Greek word, sorry, called splakizomai. And basically, just it, 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 let, me, let me give you some passages of which this word splakizomai actually arises, just to listen to how it appears within the story of the New Testament. So, Matthew chapter 9, verse 36 says this, when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved, he was moved, Jesus was moved with compassion, splakizomai, because they fainted and they were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. And this is the passage where Jesus actually then later goes on to his disciples and he says, okay, I want you guys to pray that the Lord of the harvest will actually raise up laborers to go out to bring some form of order and help and compassion and kindness but God's actions were actually precipitated by splakizomai. And the next thing we also see in the book of Matthew chapter 14 says this. Jesus went forth and he saw the multitude and he was moved with splakizomai, compassion. And it says, and he healed their sick. So again, we see that first comes this sense of compassion. Jesus looks, he observes, he sees, he watches, he imbibes. He feels this overwhelming sense of compassion, and then he acts. In this context, uh, he acts on behalf of healing their sick. So in other words, God's compassion is not just simply a warm feeling. It's not just a, a feeling inside of our gut that just feels a sense of angst or unrest, but it's, an, it's a feeling that precipitates an action or an activity. So on the one hand, it's not enough to just simply say, I feel so bad, but at least that feeling so bad will oftentimes be the motivating, the motivator, the, the, what precipitates action or activity. Now, if it is only a, a feeling inside and it's never followed by any form of action or willingness. Now, again, action can simply be as limited as saying, I've got to get more information. I've got to read about this. I've got to listen to a podcast about this subject matter. I've got to read a book about this. I need to go listen to a TED Talk or somehow educate myself or figure out some way in which I can somehow be involved or support a you know, Compassion International kid or something like that. The idea is compassion, this concept, uh, begins to start a work in a heart that then leads or follows up with a sense of action. We see that with God. Uh, Luke chapter 15, verse 20, another way in which this word comes into play, says this, then arose, uh, then, then the son arose, this is the famous uh, parable of what we would call the prodigal son. 
says, then the son arose and he came to his father. He says, but he was yet, while he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion on him. Um, and then he ran and he fell on his neck and he kissed him. Now, this is a fantastic story. And if you're familiar at all with the story, um, you know that obviously it's about two sons, not just one, but one of the sons uh, sold all of his possessions, actually took the possessions from the father, went out and squandered it all, it was all lost. And then basically what ends up happening, he comes to himself and he comes back to the family. And what we're told here about uh, Jesus telling us about the father is actually fantastic because what we would know within the parallel of the story is that the father in the story is actually parallel to, to God the father. And what's, what's interesting is that the language that Jesus uses is very unique because he says the father has compassion, but his compassion leads him to do something that's radically countercultural. Okay, so you've got to understand a little bit about, again, first century cultures. A lot of things to think about with regard to first century culture. But one of those of which is it was an extremely patriarchal society. Meant, meaning that men had a very dominant role and position of dignity and value within that culture. Men were not to be questioned. They were not to be disrespected. Now, again, you can argue with that. There's good reasons to argue against that. But the bottom line is it is what it was. And that's how Jesus kind of plays in the story. Now, the father, though, he's not your stereotypical patriarchal uh, uh, guy that's obviously trying to, like, exercise his control and his authority. Because what we're told about him is that this father, this father has compassion. And the compassion that precipitated this father's actions led this father to actually do something that was extremely undignifying. He ran. That's shocking. And again, if you're listening to this, that would shock you. You'd be like, what? It'd be like saying the president was so excited he stripped off his clothes. You'd be like, what? Like, that's odd. Like, one, that's like, undignified. You don't do that. It's not something that's normal. The idea is that a father, a man in that culture would not run because men always wanted to project this image of being in control, being uh, powerful, being mighty, and kids run. Junior hires run. You know, boys run after girls, or boys do things that are running and running around. But men, dignified, powerful, masculine, patriarchal men don't run. But not this father. He runs because he's motivated by what Jesus says is splakidomai, compassion. So it actually allows him, leads him to do this incredibly undignifying act as a way of demonstrating his incredible splakizomai, his love. So Matthew chapter 12, verse 7 says this, And if you know what is meant, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, is a reference to Hosea. Uh, he says, you wouldn't have condemned the guiltless. Now, this story uh, uses the word mercy this time. Um, it's the word mercy. It's the other uh, word that was used within the story, that compassion and mercy are both of the traits that we see that arise within the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, within this particular context, Jesus is with his disciples and they're on what's called the Sabbath. It was kind of like the, their holy day on Saturday. And as they're walking through this field, his disciples get hungry and they begin to eat a grain of wheat, right? So if you've ever walked through a, a field and you've seen grains of wheat, you know, the, the little wheat berries, you can eat them. And if you chew them long enough, just try this, kind of fun, it uh, actually becomes gum. It becomes like a, like a gum. You can actually chew it, like gum, real gum. Um, anyways, uh, Jesus' disciples were actually eating this as a form of nutrition. 
And the spiritual leaders of the day, they, listen, they watch the disciples and they're like, how dare you guys eat food on the Sabbath? So what, the issue wasn't that they were eating food, but the issue was that they were taking grain from the field. And, and are you ready for this? They were doing this. They're like, what's wrong with doing that? Because you got, you're separating the wheat from the chaff. You're, you're taking the grain and you're separating the, the fluffy, flaky stuff. Again, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, you know, I'm not into flowers and uh, agriculture. So I don't know the technical terms. So if you know the technical terms, sorry if I offended you. But they would separate the wheat from the chaff. I know that much. And, uh, and now the Jewish custom and tradition, they had all these laws as to what defined work on the Sabbath. And one of the things that said, they, they described, they said one of the legal lawyers of the day who were studying the scriptures, they were saying, one of the things that defines work or labor on the Sabbath, because you're not supposed to work on, la- on the Sabbath, is if you, if you uh, harvest grain on the Sabbath, that's work. So don't harvest grain. So this little action here, that constituted work. So they, they were against the law. So the, uh, Jesus' disciples were doing this, and they were eating the food that was coming out of that. And religious leaders were looking at Jesus like, how dare you? break and violate the law. They're illegal. They're doing something that's illegal today on this holy day. And then Jesus says, don't you get it? Don't you know what the scriptures have taught? That God actually desires mercy and not blind submission to just a bunch of rules and laws, i.e. sacrifice. God actually cares about mercy. Later, it would go on to say that, that the laws were made for man, not man for the laws, not people to be bound by laws. God's aim is not to simply oppress us with laws, oppress you with demands and laws. God's aim is to give you life, mercy, compassion. So, in closing, uh, what we see is that the response that God actually commends is compassion and mercy. I want to finish with a couple quotes and then a passage out of the book of Ephesians. So if you want to turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to end there. Uh, first quote is by a guy by the name of David Platt. Some of you may be familiar with him. He wrote a pretty popular book a few years ago called Radical. And he wrote this. He actually has written some really great um, articles on the subject of immigration. He says, we've got to begin to think about immigrants, whether legal or illegal. We've got to begin to think about immigrants, whether legal or illegal, not as problems to be solved, but as people to be loved, and to think through how can we address what is clearly out-of-date legislation with the current labor market in our country, to think through how do we work to establish and enforce just laws that address immigration, which I think should also include securing our borders. I'm not saying there are any easy answers, but there are biblical foundations that drive how Christians should think through this issue. Um, In another article that was on this you know, series of articles that I linked to my Facebook page, uh, someone had basically made the statement, and I think it's pretty accurate. It said, for the most part, the way America has actually handled this issue of immigration has been at best confusing. Because on the one hand, there are signs posted up all over, you know, our extended borders that say, keep out. But on the other hand, there are also signs all around saying, uh, we need work. We need laborers to pick our strawberries, to harvest our fields. To t- we need cheap labor. We need people to come in because Americans don't want to do this type of stuff. So there is at best some level of confusion. So which is it? Keep out or come in? And there's this constant tug of war. But again, my point is not to get into policy or politics, but to really ask the question, what do we as followers of Jesus, how should we respond to this type of stuff? How should we think through these things carefully? Next uh, slide and final quote is uh, again by a guy named Russell Moore. First of three says this, a large issue is how we talk about this. 
recognizing that this is not about, quote unquote, issues or, quote unquote, culture wars, but about persons made in the image of God. Our churches must be uh, the presence of Christ to all persons, regardless of country of origin or legal status. We need to stand against bigotry and harassment and exploitation, even when it's politically profitable for those who stand with us on other issues. Immigration isn't just, quote unquote, an issue. It's an opportunity to see what that, as important as the United States of America is, there will be a day when the United States of America will no longer exist. And on that day, the sons and the daughters of God will stand before the throne of God. Some of them are migrant workers and hotel maids now. They will be kings and queens then. They are our brothers and sisters forever. We might be a natural-born uh, we might be a natural-born Americans, but we're all immigrants to the kingdom of God. Whatever our disagreements on immigration as policy, we must not disagree on immigrants as persons. Our message to them in every language and every person must be whosoever will may come enter into the kingdom of God. And I want to finish by reading the passage that was referred to up there out of the book of Ephesians. And just listen to this. And then I'll get into some questions. So if hopefully you guys have added some questions and or upvoted. And we'll try to address some of those. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. He says, remember that you... At one time, you were once separated from Christ. And he uses actual the language. He says, you are alienated. You are actual illegal aliens to the household of God. You didn't belong. It didn't belong to you. It wasn't yours. In fact, by our own condition of our heart, we rejected and ran away from, and we were at enmity, he would say, at enmity against anything pertaining to God. He would, went on to say that we were from and uh, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and we are strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. And he's made peace with us. So what we have is this God who actually has come to us who were alienated. We didn't belong. And he gives us a place at the table. And he calls us sons and daughters. So the very heart of the Christian gospel is that all of us, we're outsiders. Every one of us were foreigners and aliens and rejects from God's good kingdom. But God acted on our behalf and did something to bring us into a place of relationship. So as followers of Jesus, we have to think through these things. We can't just ignore it, but we have to think through these things carefully because there is no simplistic ways of thinking through this. Now, what I want to do is I'll pray and we'll look at some questions. We'll finish with a couple songs of worship. Is that cool? So let me pray, and we'll look at some questions. God, thank you again for your love. Thank you, God, that you have reached out to us. You've given us a place. You haven't rejected us. And God, thank you that you did that at great sacrifice, great cost to yourself. You accommodated us. God, by taking upon yourself our transgression, our sin, our shame, our brokenness. You made a place for us, a great inconvenience to yourself so that right now at the right hand of God is Christ in a wounded body. We, we can't even begin to comprehend that. So in the book of Revelation, it says that John sees a lamb that was slain from the foundations of the world. 
uh, that God somehow you made allowance for us. So help us as we think through these things and give me uh, grace and uh, strength and wisdom right now to be able to uh, respond to some of these questions. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.